You're listening to the Writers Off The Page podcast. Here's your host, writer, reader, journalist, and lover of soy lattes, Sinead Maripodi. Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me on Writers Off The Page. This series, I've been chatting to a smorgasbord of talented WA writers to find out their tips and tricks for getting published. Now for today's chat, we're travelling all the way to Berlin, at least virtually. Zoe Delo was born in Perth, however moved to London in her 20s to work as a magazine sub-editor for the BBC before completing a Masters in Creative Writing. At the moment, Zoe lives in Berlin with her family and has just released her debut psychological suspense novel, The Night Village, with Fremantle Press. Zoe, thanks for joining me all the way from Berlin. Thanks for having me, Sinead. Now, first off, why are you in Berlin? Um, my husband was born here, so he moved to Australia when he was eight and then he um, always came back here for holidays and we just thought that we would um, have a go living here for a few years just to see what it was like, do some travelling, <laughs> which hasn't worked out too well, but um, just to just for something different really. So the night village, it's just out and, oh, my gosh, it's still I'm still reeling from having finished it. <laughs> Before we get into the nitty-gritty, tell me a little bit about the plot for people. It's only just come out. Tell me about it. Okay, so The Night Village opens with my main character, Simone. She is She's moved to London from Perth to kind of launch her career, but she's ended up um, having a baby with someone she doesn't know that well, a man called Paul. And it opens with her in hospital having just sort of having the baby and then the next day she goes back to his apartment um, at the Barbican Estate in um, the financial district and she has to look after this new baby. She's far from home. She doesn't really know what she's doing. She's quite sort of shell-shocked. And then about two weeks after that, Paul's cousin Rachel calls up and she wants to come and stay. She's moving to London and so she says she can come and help with the baby. But as soon as she arrives, Simone feels very on edge she doesn't know why. She doesn't know if she's imagining things or if she's just tired. Um, and then as the novel goes on, we kind of find out more about why Rachel's come and it the tension builds and it kind of goes from there, as you now know. <laughs> as I now know. I don't know if it's just the fact that I'm a relatively new mum myself. Um, I don't think I really breathed properly throughout the entire novel. <laughs> I just, oh gosh, he had me on the edge of my seat. Where on earth did the idea come from? I think I just felt very shell, like I felt like that a lot after I had a son, but I wasn't actually in Simone's situation. Um, I just felt very kind of alert to danger. So it was a very familiar feeling, but the thing that I kept thinking was imagine if you were in this situation but you didn't actually know the people around you that well. Like imagine if you were actually in a very precarious situation and feeling like this. And it kind of came from there. I just wanted to go back and I wanted to kind of write about it. But then I thought I also want to write. I was reading a lot of psychological suspense at the time and I think that style just really appealed to me as well, that thing where you don't know as a reader what's going on and then at the end you find out um, it's quite fun to read and it was a lot of fun to write. <laughs> well, it is funny. As I said, like I don't know if it's because I was going to say I'm in a very similar situation to Simone, but I'm not. I, the only similarity is that I've had a baby. That is it. Um, it was just everything was so familiar. There, 
it's just so relatable. The characters that you've created are so real inside their head that it just absolutely transports you into the novel until you just forget you're reading. You're, you're just there. It's amazing. Oh, that's good. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think I'll go on. No, no, you go. Oh, I think one of the things that Georgia said to me, Georgia Richter at Fremantle Press, she said when we were kind of talking about where it was going to go, she said, oh, Simone's really honing her instincts, isn't she? And I thought that was really interesting because I thought that is the problem when you first have a baby, you do have that maternal instinct, but it's kind of firing all over the place and you haven't learnt to kind of live with it. So at the beginning, you're kind of extremely panicky about every danger and then over time it kind of settles. And I thought that was a really good way of thinking about what she's going through and it helped me when I was writing it to think, okay, she's honing her instincts here. It actually would have helped me at the time when I had a newborn as well, but I didn't know George then. <laughs> and I don't, I won't give anything away with the character of Rachel other than that the whole way through reading her, I wanted to punch her. Um, <laughs> um, it's just everything, and I'm safe to say this without giving away any major plot things, Anything that people do to annoy you once you've had a baby, Rachel does every possible yeah. thing. Yeah, it was. Where did she come from? Did you? Were you kind of smirking a little bit as you were riding her, going, "Oh yeah, she's going to do this. She's going to do that." Maybe I think I'm sure that she. I'm sure that she does things that I did to people before I had children. Like I think she's probably partly me in a way, just that kind of trying to do the right thing but but just kind of I don't know like you just feel so defensive with a newborn and I think to give people an example that's not going to break anything is imagine if your baby was asleep and somebody just went and picked it up mm. yeah <laughs> yeah and you don't realize how yeah because I think because you're so sleep deprived so the sleep thing just becomes this kind of a, it rules your life and when the baby's asleep that's when you finally have time to just kind of do nothing and or just do whatever you need to get done so that yeah the sleep thing is it's so big and then when your kids are older you don't even think about it you just forget so where were you when you wrote the night village location wise in terms of perth berlin london i was back in perth so we moved back to perth when my first son was i think about 11 months old um so i wrote it I'd kind of been working on another novel and then one night I was out with some friends and I said, oh, I feel like writing a book about London and, you know, maybe about what it was like working over there and stuff. And one of my friends was like, oh, yeah, I'd read that, I'd read that. So I was like, right, okay. Went home that night probably and started. And um, it was actually really good to write it away from London because I could remember a lot of things kind of came back to me quite easily and um, I think... Yeah, your memories become more intense. You only remember the really important things. So it kind of becomes quite concentrated. Whereas if you're sitting in a situation trying to write about it, you, you pick up on everything and it kind of becomes really diluted. So, yeah, I wrote it in Perth and it was quite a good way of travelling back to London um, in my head. <laughs> the choice of the Barbican estate for Paul's house and where Simone lived, I hadn't heard of it myself even though I've been to London quite a few times um and I googled it you could not have picked a better place what was the was it just because of that kind of 
cold, uninviting <laughs> feeling. I have apologies to any Londoners that are listening to this that are perhaps yeah, quite passionate about the Barbican estate. <laughs> um, yeah, why there? I think I used to go there a lot when I lived there. Um, it's got a cultural centre at the middle that you go to and I used to work around there and I did kind of know it quite well over the years I got to know it. And I kind of had a bit of a love-hate relationship with it because, um, yeah, you get quite lost when you're there. You always get quite disorientated. It's very windy. It's very kind of treeless. There's not a lot of um, human activity a lot of the time. It's quite deserted, even though it's the middle of London. Um, and I think I can't remember when I decided to move it there, but at one point I just was writing and I just decided I'm going to put all the characters in the Barbican and and at that point it just became so much more real to me, the whole story, because I could remember being there so well, more than I could remember other parts of London. It's very um, distinctive architecture and it gives you a very particular feeling, just that cold kind of greyness. Um, I think as well, I mean, as I said, not having heard of it and Googling pictures of it, it doesn't match up with a baby, so it just no. added to the that feeling of everything was just a little bit wrong and out of yes. place, which, yeah. Yeah, I do think, I mean, it's kind of one of those places that architects, some architects love, but I don't think that the people who designed it spent a lot of time looking after small children because it's got open swimming pools, I mean, open kind of ponds, it's got those tower kind of blocks that, it feels dangerous, I think. It's just children. a cement, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of places to fall over mm-hmm. and get lost and dark, yeah. So I think that was the other thing. It's just not kind of a very welcoming place to me. So tell me, what was the path from having the idea, the path to publication, what did that mm-hmm. look like for you? Um, well, I was writing it back in Perth and then the Hungerford Award was um, – about to the deadline was coming up again, which is every two years. Um, it's an unpublished manuscript award that's held by Fremantle Press for West Australian authors. So it's a really good opportunity if you live in Western Australia because, you know, it's judged. It's um, There's a lot of people reading your entries. They're looked at quite carefully by different judges. So I knew that I wanted to get it in for that. Um, and so I raced towards the finish line and got to 50,000 words and and submitted it kind of the night of the deadline. And then it was shortlisted um, and then sort of the week after, I think, I talked to Georgia Richter at Fremantle Press about what she thought I could do to to take the novel further and and, um, what books I should read, where she saw it going, and she invited me to resubmit, which I did after quite a lot of kind of rewriting and and talking to various people I sent it back to Fremantle Press and they accepted it which was great I have to ask so from what I've seen so this wasn't actually your first manuscript was it no I wrote another one as part of my master's course which was also actually shortlisted for the Hungerford but it just never came together in the way that this one did like it just I don't know was it also a psychological suspense no, it was more like a kind of literary novel, like a, an Australian novel, which I thought um, would would be, I don't know, like I just, yeah, it just never came together in the same way. Um, and eventually I think my husband just said to me, look, Zoe, you just need to start something new. <laughs> so I did. 
And then, I, yeah, I've put that one aside. I don't think it will ever be published. I'm not really interested in looking at it again. I'd probably just start something new from now. But it was a good um, exercise in in finishing something and then also just eventually putting it aside and deciding to start something new and, yeah, learning from it but letting it go. So when you started The Night Village, how much had how much of an idea did you have of where it was going to go? Did you plot everything out or did you have an idea and just run with it? No, I didn't have any idea of where it was going to go. I didn't, I literally just built it kind of scene by scene and then at the end of the kind of first draft, which was 50,000 words, I started thinking, okay, what can I do with this? Um, And it was also kind of when it was, shortlisted for the Hungerford you know they said it's a thriller and I was like oh okay I hadn't actually considered it a thriller myself but now that you've um kind of you know pointed me in that direction I will think of it in that way and think about ways of bringing it more into line with that kind of style of um plot so then I had to think about the twists and the tension and and kind of the underlying story and that's when a lot of that came through and I actually had a um a psychological suspense novelist read it and she gave me some really good pointers for kind of the genre and stuff. I yeah, but I didn't stop with, at all. With the Hungerford Award, how mm. much of the manuscript do you submit? All of it with a minimum of 50,000 words. So the Hungerford judges have to, I mean, they read about 60 man, full manuscripts. It's a huge job. Um, and so how similar, you've obviously worked with Georgia Richter after having been shortlisted for the Hungerford. How how much has changed oh, since then? Lots, a lot. Yeah, it's really changed. I think um, it probably went in quite rough. I mean, I think there was a lot of probably continuity errors and I think that the characters probably changed names halfway through and stuff. Um it, it grows very gradually. I mean, it went from 50,000 words to I think about 74 in the end. So it just kind of expands and um, I did a lot of work initially with Georgia and then there's another editor at Fremantle Press, Armel Davies, who also went over it. Um, so we, we did a lot of work on it. They do a huge amount of work, I think, on their manuscripts. Maybe not all of them, but they did on this one. <laughs> It's really interesting because, I mean, I don't know if this is just maybe I'm a little dense or a common misconception, but you kind of think a manuscript that has been shortlisted for quite a prestigious award is pretty much good to go. Like, did you have that yeah. feeling originally? Did you expect there to be so much work to do post post shortlisting? I probably didn't realise how much. I think that it is a very long journey when it gets submitted to, to, to publishing. And I think that that is um, probably they're looking for potential, but they know how to bring it out. They know how to work with writers to make something as good as it can be. And I think, um, you know, it happens over a long period of time. There's, there's time when you're not working on it because it's with the editors and you have time to think about it and then it comes back to you. Um, but I think also you kind of get the help when you've possibly run out of steam a bit and if it's accepted then these other people come in and they give you a lot more kind of energy and and enthusiasm. So it didn't feel like hard work. It was actually really, um, I learned a lot from it. Are there any big things that you learned um, that perhaps 
um, particularly with the genre, psychological suspense, um, that you needed to do differently that you can share with us without giving away any any spoilers? Uh, yeah, I think um, probably one thing is you have to, I mean, by, by the time you've got the whole story, I mean, you have to know the whole story and then I think you can go back over the draft and um, drop hints to the reader that then makes sense at the end. And I've seen that done really well by other writers um, where you you read a novel and then you find out the whole story and then everything that didn't kind of make sense suddenly makes sense. I think that's kind of mm. part of it, definitely. So did you um, go back after and kind of plant seeds here and there throughout it? Yeah, and that was, that was definitely with Georgia. I mean, Fremantle Press publishes a lot of crime fiction, so she knew, she was kind of saying, okay, we need to kind of, I think it's, I guess it's foreshadowing and stuff like that. You kind of, um, you... Yeah, you, you kind of have to think about the whole thing as, and you kind of have to hold the whole thing in your head and then um, make sure that everything stacks up at the end as well. It's a long process but it's, it's, quite, it's quite fun. I'd definitely do it again. So, well, so what was the process from the initial draft pre-Hungerford submission to um, I guess one of the final drafts while working with Fremantle Press? How much time were you looking at there? I think it was, well, it was submitted in, when was the awards? The awards were at the end of 2018 and then it's been published in August. So we finished working on it, I think, at the beginning of 2021. We're pretty much done and then it goes into marketing. But there was a structural edit and then another edit with Armel and then copy editing, proofreading, and then the cover comes in and the marketing comes in and... Um, it starts going out to reviewers and stuff. So it it seemed like a really long time when they said it's going to come out in 2021. I was like, gosh, that's ages away. But actually it goes very fast and it was good to have that much time to work on it. I think that was a real luxury. Um, what was the most challenging, challenging stage for you? Probably not knowing, like when I was working on it for Fremantle Press but not knowing if I was going to... Um, you know, if they were going to accept it, so waiting. But you always have to wait as a writer. You're always waiting to hear back from someone. But that one I just really wanted it. And I think I actually emailed George and she wrote back to me and said, you yeah, know, we do, we want we want to publish it. We just need to talk about um, the plot and that was that was great. So it's probably it's always waiting when you're a writer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um I know obviously my mood when I am reading a psychological suspense and the tension that goes through mm. me. Did you have those moments writing it where it consumed mm. the whole of you? Yeah, definitely. I felt with this one, and I think this might be a sign that a piece of writing is working actually in, in retrospect. I think if you're really engaged in the story and you feel like it's um, Kind of captivating you and you want to find out what happens next I think that is a sign that that the story is working and I definitely felt like that with this one and I definitely haven't felt like that at other times when I've been writing but with this one I felt like I was reading it. How old are your children now do you mind me asking? No they're seven and ten. Did yeah. you find when you stepped away from the keyboard any of those feelings of Simone's continued into real life because he had written them so vividly? 
just that paranoia and no I think all that really died down after that first kind of initial probably 12 weeks I think the first 12 weeks when you have a newborn is so different to what you feel like when the baby's a little bit bigger and they start to smile and they start to look back at you and they start to feel like a separate person I think you come out of that quite quickly and it's almost like a boot camp um I did really actually enjoy writing um, the scenes of like looking after a really small baby and holding a really small baby. I'd kind of forgotten all that because you're doing it all the time. And then, which was funny actually, like, even reading it, I remember saying to my husband, "Oh God, do you remember when we used to hold our little one like, and he was this big, and you know he just curl on us, and now he crawls on us yeah. and bites us, <laughs> and yeah. he's just into everything. <laughs> it's so different. Yeah, it does. It brings back those feelings." Yeah, it brought it all back and it was quite nice kind of revisiting it but in in peace and not having to kind of actually do it and not being sleep deprived. So Having sleep while you were writing it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Was it a very deliberate decision? I'm thinking it was and it makes sense to me but that the reference, we don't often hear the baby's name in the book. Mm. Tell me a little bit about that. That was deliberate. I think, I can't remember if I was like that. I think, yeah, when a baby's first born, you just, it's very difficult to think of it as a separate person to you. And I think that's part of the um, kind of paranoia and the stress of having a baby kind of out in the world and it can be taken from you, but you just feel this incredible kind of instinct to not ever let go of it. And I think that um, the, yeah, not calling it by its name, calling it the baby, I think is part of that beginning stage when you don't really see it as separate from you. And then when she starts to call it his name at the end, it's, she's kind of moved forward a bit and she's a bit more comfortable with it, with him being a separate person. And what about the title, The Night Village? Where did that come from? Um, that came from, I think, we kind of decided we needed a, a good title that was kind of quite... Um, solid it was called she came to stay to begin which I just gave it um in a kind of rush because I couldn't think I'm actually I find it really hard to think of titles um but we thought of the night village it's kind of that doll's house in the museum of childhood which which she visits and then she kind of realizes that even though she feels like she's on her own there is actually this whole village of I mean it's that whole kind of saying as well of that it takes a village to raise a child and you have to find your village but it's also this village to me of all these parents in the middle of the night with their awake babies kind of who feel like they're on their own. But actually there's, there's people doing it all over the world and you just have to kind of find them. That's what I always, that's what it, it yeah, I wanted to I wanted to kind of bring that idea across a bit. So can I ask what are you working on now? So you said that you're unlikely to go back to the previous manuscript that was shortlisted yeah. for the Hungerford. Is there something else in the pipeline? Um, I've started a couple of things. I'm kind of, my kids are on school holidays at the moment, so everything has been a bit on hold. Um, But I've started another novel which is set in Perth this time. Um, And it's, I think it's also going to be psychological suspense. Um, And that is, I've probably done about 25,000 words, I think. I haven't picked it up for a while. And then I'm also, I've started working on a memoir of moving to Berlin, which might not be kind of for anyone more than me and my family, but it's kind of about learning German and, and 
what it's like moving to a new city with kids and stuff like that. It's quite fun to write. I'll just see what happens with both of them. So what's your biggest tip for people? We've got aspiring writers listening to this, particularly Mm. people who are wanting to go down the psychological suspense or thriller pathway. Mm. What would be your biggest tip? Um, I think obviously read a lot in the genre and read kind of the um, classics. Like I think, you know, Rebecca, for example, is such a classic psychological suspense novel. Shirley Jackson, people like that. I mean, I still need to discover more of them. Um, but I think, I don't know what my tip would be. I think one of my, one of my things I've realised is that you have to have the rest of your life quite, um, stable and, um, <laughs> calm to, <laughs> to write this kind of, or to write it all really. So I think that would be my tip would be, you know, the writing will come, but what you need to focus on is, is looking after yourself as well so that you feel kind of, um, prepared to go, you know, to kind of go the distance with a long project like a novel, which is difficult to do. Yeah, definitely. And what does the writing journey look for you, I suppose? Having two kids, you said school holidays, things are on pause a little bit at the moment. Mm. Typically, how much time would you dedicate to writing? Do you have a set, get up early, stay up late, weekend? Um, It depends. If my kids are at school, I'd probably try to write every day when they're at school and um, maybe 700 words or a 1,000 words a day when I do and then just have a kind of, I think it's good to have a project on the go that you um, are thinking about regularly and kind of checking in with regularly so that it just kind of feels like it's growing um, sort of slowly and um, without, you know, I mean, I think if you give yourself time in between each writing session to think about it, then you can normally come back with a new idea. And even if, you know, the draft that you get at the end is only 50,000 words and it's pretty scrappy, you can actually still do a lot with that. Um, if you've got something to work with, I think the editing is really where the where the real work happens and where, where you can really progress a project, have great ideas, um, when you've actually got something to kind of, tinker with and think about having done written the first debut psychological suspense freely we'll say you pantsed your way through it and then went through and, <laughs> yeah, and entered in the seats would you do it the same second time around or do you think it would be any easier um to plot it plot it what would work for you i think i would probably do it the same way but i would probably not send it to anyone in the state that I sent my first novel off, I would probably get it a bit like I would take it through probably at quite a few more drafts before I showed it to anyone else because I, yeah, I just think that it would have saved a lot of time if I'd, if I'd known more where I was going with it before I sent it off. I love that you say that, like you sent it off to all these places and got rejections, but no, you sent it off and you got shortlisted for an award. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was surprised though. <laughs> Did you send it anywhere else or was that the only? No, that was it. I just kind of had that in my head and I just thought, I'm in Perth, I'm going to enter this. This is such a great opportunity. It didn't go anywhere else. Um, Really, it's a dream run. You don't hear of that very often. Not Most people have their spreadsheet of submissions and their, you know, however many rejections or if they get a rejection and just don't hear back at all. But, no, that's a dream run. You've done amazingly. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, sometimes it does just, I think it just... If you work at writing for long enough, you do eventually 
you do eventually get through and everyone does. I mean, I remember seeing a writer at a um, some kind of writing event and she said to me, oh, what have you published? And I said, I haven't published anything. She said, well, we all started off like that. And I was like, oh, yeah. It hadn't mm. actually occurred to me that everyone had to kind of get their little break and you do if you keep working at it, I think. So what's the plan in terms of coming back to Perth? So you're writing at the moment um, mm. the next novel that's set in Perth. Would is there any plan to head back this way or are you quite happy writing about it like you did writing about um, the night village away from London and just having those little sneaky tidbits that you remembered? Are you doing the same thing for this one? Yeah, I think it's easier actually to write about a place when you're not there for some reason. I don't know why. I think it's why people go on writing retreats and people kind of, you know, write about, write their memoirs when they're older. I think you, when you have that distance, for some reason, it just works better for writing. I don't know what it is. I think maybe everything just becomes more concentrated. Maybe the most important things stand out more. Um, but I don't know if we'll when we'll come back. I mean, it's difficult at the moment because people can't really come back mm. at all. I, I cannot do quarantine with two children. I tell them <laughs> that would just not. Oh, why ever good not? For everyone. No. <laughs> so we'll just have to wait and see. I think it's pretty. It's pretty open. I mean, part of me would love to come back to Perth, but um, at the moment we'll just stay here and see what happens. Well, at least you've got your virtual holidays when you're writing, just tra letting the yeah. words transport you, I suppose. Exactly. That's very true. Zoe Dilla, where can people find you online to keep up with your journey? Um, I've got a Facebook page, which is Zoe Dilla Author, and Instagram and Twitter across all of the big ones across all of the big ones yeah <laughs> excellent we can't well I can't wait to see what comes out next what's going to send my heart racing and not let me sleep <laughs> for another few weeks <laughs> thank you so much for joining us particularly all the way in Berlin thank you for having me Sinead